Well, happy Easter. Christ is risen. All right. We still remembered our lines. Good work. Well, this is an exciting, exciting Sunday. Our first Easter at Veritas Tri-Village, and I'm incredibly thankful and glad you guys all came to join us. Uh, My name's Brad. I'm the the campus pastor here at the Tri-Village campus, Um, and I'm incredibly glad you're here. If it's your first time with us, either this morning or maybe you came to the Good Friday gathering on Friday, um, I want to just give you a special welcome and ask you to take a moment to fill out the Connect card. It should be somewhere in uh, one of the chairs in front of you or underneath you. Um, Fill that out. Let us know who you are, how we can connect with you, how we can connect you with the body of Christ that God's building here, because it's definitely well more than uh, than a once a year gathering celebrating Easter. We're a community of people being transformed by the gospel, seeking to join God in transforming the city. Um, Also, if you are a a young one, elementary age, um, please go ahead and you can go uh, with Melissa. We have a uh, exciting special Easter Easter egg hunt, I think. Um, If you're over, I don't know, 10, you can't go. You have to stay here. So, all right, well, um, thanks so much for coming again. Um, A couple quick things. If it's your first time with us, let me just take a moment to share with you what's going on here. Um, Because we are at Veritas, we're a church that gathers in two locations. Uh, We have a a campus that meets in the short north, and we started about two months ago gathering here in the Tri-Village neighborhood. And now we were a, a church plant about four years ago, and we started out in the short north just wanting to be a church that was all about Jesus Christ and him crucified, proclaiming the gospel. And as we, as we launched that campus four years ago, we just saw God do amazing things. And as we grew and continued to outgrow our space there, we wanted to be a church that grew missionally, and we wanted to be a church that actually planted campuses where our people were. And so that's kind of what led to the birth of Veritas Tri-Village. About a year ago, we started noticing that we had tons of community groups, tons of members, tons of people coming from the Upper Arlington, Grandview, Marble Cliff uh, neighborhoods. And so we wanted to plant a campus here so that we could reach the campus, uh, reach the people where our members are already living among. So many of you I know are living uh, nearby and, uh, and we're excited to have you join us because we feel like we're being a part of what God's doing, what he's always been doing to make himself glorified in the Tri-Village neighborhood and across Columbus. So that's really um, what, we're, what we're about. And um, we're also into our second week of our sermon series, Redemption Songs, um, we're, which has been a study going through Jonah and Nahum. And now, the book of Jonah isn't really a common text for, the, for Easter Sunday. It's not your normal Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not your normal gospel storyline. But this is actually very intentional. When we were planning this sermon series, we really intentionally planned it so that Jonah 2 would fall on Resurrection Sunday. And now this is because of all of the Old Testament, which Jesus said pointed towards him, proclaimed him, of all of the Old Testament, Jesus spoke of Jonah 2 being a unique place that proclaimed his resurrection. A unique place where we, he, we saw the foreshadowing of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection bring about his victory over death and our hope. And so we planned well in advance to see Jonah 2 be the place that we got to celebrate Easter Sunday on. And so that's where we're digging into today. And because I also want to take a moment, like I did last week, and acknowledge for for those of you who missed last week, that Jonah is a very strange story. Most of you who have, have grown up in church, and even many of you who haven't grown up in church, know that Jonah is a story about a man who got swallowed by a fish. And he spent three days in the belly of this great fish, and then he got vomited back up on a dry land. And I'm just going to go and say, this is a ridiculous story. It's not a common story. And now, the bigger thing that I want to point us to, because I believe that this is a true story, I believe that this actually happened, but the bigger thing I want to point us to is that the Bible is a book that tells truth. And it tells truth in many, many different ways, through historical narrative, through poem, um, through a ton of different avenues. And here it tells the true story of our rebellion and God's radical pursuit of us for our redemption and a story about a man and a very, very large fish. And so this is a ridiculous story. And I also want to acknowledge this because I want to save us from from the absurdity of chronological snobbery. And what I mean by that is where we kind of come to a point where we think that we're the first ones in our enlightened Western minds to ever think that this story is strange. There was never a moment in history where Jonah being swallowed by a fish and being vomited out three days later was not an absolute ridiculous story. 
There's never a time or a place where this was common. Where, you know, this story is being told and they're like, oh yeah, I, I know about a guy who that happened to. So yeah, that, that happens a lot. This is a ridiculous story. And it's meant to point us, not merely to this miracle, but the radical story. And the reason we're celebrating on Easter Sunday is because it points to a miracle that makes this one pale in comparison. It points to a miracle so infinitely greater about a man who lived a perfect life, died, and was buried in the earth for three days. And that on the third day, he rose again to eternal life. So let me urge you, if you're struggling with the story of Jonah, you're missing the point because there's a much bigger miracle that we must grapple with and come to face with. Because that's the miracle that truly and radically transforms us, and it's the miracle that radically transformed Jonah, as we're going to get to see here. So um, we're, we're really going to be digging deep into this, and I'm not going to be talking much about the details here. I'm not going to be talking about, like I said last week, we're not going to be digging into the size of the fish, or what kind of a fish, or whether it's a whale shark, or a sperm whale, or whatever. We're not going to be talking about how he made a breathing apparatus out of kelp. We're not going to be talking about any of these details because we're going to be digging into the deeper story. And here's the deal, that if we believe in the God of the Bible who created everything out of nothing, the God of the Bible that sustains all things by the power of his word, then this is no problem to understand as something that he could do for his glory and to point us towards his son. So there's a much greater miracle that we must look towards because it's in this story that actually God is proclaiming to us his grace like through a megaphone. A radical story where we can see ourselves, our rebellion, our rising up against God, our running from his will and his radical, never-ending, relentless pursuit of us to bring us back to him in grace so that we might be transformed and be used according to his purposes. And so here in Jonah, we see, again, we see a miracle pointing towards a greater miracle of an unbelievable joy and grace. And so my, my prayer this morning is that we would gaze upon resurrection. And that we'd gaze upon it in such a way that we'd see Jonah and we would see Jesus as radical grace of God. And that we'd see how Jonah actually looked towards Jesus to give him resurrecting grace. And how Jesus pointed us towards Jonah so we might see how it's only in him that we could find resurrection life. All right, so let me recap real quickly Jonah 1. So for those of you who missed it, Jonah 1, we had Jonah, who's a prophet of God, received the word of the Lord. It came to him and he said, Jonah, rise up and go to Nineveh and speak out against it. Call them to repentance. Warn them of the destruction that is coming upon them. Give them warning so that if they repent and turn to me, my anger and my wrath will relent and I won't destroy that city. And so Jonah, rather than rising up and, and, and following God like you might imagine a, a good prophet doing, Jonah rises up and he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He literally goes to the ends of the earth, to the farthest known point in, in the continent of the country of Spain, to a place called Tarshish. So he runs from the will of God, not out of fear, but out of an ethnocentric racist hatred of the Ninevites. You see, Nineveh was the, the largest, greatest city of this massive empire known as Assyria. And the, the, the empire of Assyria was growing and it had taken over all the kingdoms that was surrounding the nation of Israel. So that the nation of Israel was in deep, deep fear over their state. And they, they, they believed that as long as Nineveh existed, they could never be safe. And so this led Jonah out of hatred, desiring not to warn the Ninevites of the, the coming destruction, to guarantee their fate that they would be destroyed. He runs from them, and he runs from God. And we saw last week that as he rose up against God and ran from God, the only place that he could go was down. Our story said that he went down to Joppa, he went down onto a ship, he went down into the inner point of the ship, and then he went down to sleep. He reached rock bottom. And in the midst of that rebellion, God brought a gracious storm. A massive storm that was threatening to just tear apart the ship, 
A storm that is so big that these experienced sailors who were doing probably the biggest voyage known at the time going from Joppa to Tarshish, these experienced sailors to fear for their lives, to throw precious cargo overboard, to call out to any and every God they could think of looking for salvation, and to then ultimately turn to figure out who's behind this. And so they discovered that Jonah's sin was the reason that God brought this storm. And so as this ship was being threatened to just be teared to pieces, Jonah says to them, obviously, well, he's thinking, clearly I cannot run from God. The only way that I can ever be sure that Nineveh will be destroyed is if I, if I die. So he tells them to throw his body into the sea so that the storm will go away. He doesn't say, I, I, I sinned against God, please turn this boat around, I need to go back to the will of God. He doesn't say that, he just says, throw my body into the sea. And if you remember last week, that same word he uses of pick me up and throw me into the sea was the word that we see of God saying of removing sin from his people from Leviticus 16. So Jonah's actually being more prophetic than he even knows. Saying, if you want to be saved, you have to pick up the sin from among you and throw it into the sea. And so these sailors do exactly that and the storm calms and it brings them to a point where they see the true God of the Bible, where they repent, where they rejoice, and where they come to faith. And we also see Jonah now, as he's swallowed up into an incredibly great fish, and that's where we enter in our story now. So please go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to uh, read through Jonah, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 17, and through chapter 2. I said last week that, uh, that Jonah is right be between Obadiah and Micah, so if you have trouble finding it, that should bookmark it for you. Hopefully you can find that. Um, take a moment, and there will also be the, the words will be on the screen above. So let's read. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you have heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come to you this morning um, so incredibly anxious to just see you reveal the power of the resurrection to us. Lord, that you'd help us see this foreshadowing in the story of Jonah, but let it point us to the greater story, the greater resurrection that we see in Christ. Lord, let our hearts worship you, Lord. Don't let us observe the resurrection from far off. Don't let us approach this day as just some holy day where we know we should go to church. But Lord, transform our hearts. Bring us to repentance, Lord, and bring us life. Because in you, we have life through the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Right, so now there's, there's two major things I want to point out to us and we're going to be digging through. First, first we're going to see how, how Jonah was actually looking to, forward towards Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to see how Jonah, Jonah points us to look towards Jesus. So now first, how did Jonah 
look to Jesus. Because this passage is pretty incredible. This passage, at, in a book where we see this, this, this storyline of action, of, of events, of, 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 of all these things, just this, this very quick telling story about what's happening, all of a sudden we get to the point of really the height of the story. After Jonah's thrown overboard, after this fish swallows him up, when we're so anxious to see, okay, what was that like? How? What happened? What are the details? All of a sudden we get a poem. We get a poem. We get a poem all, all of a sudden talking about a man's emotions, a man's struggles, a man who's hit rock bottom, but by the grace of God, God won't let him go. And we also don't, it's not quite like most of the poems that we see throughout the Psalms. Most of the Psalms have this structure of building tension, building worry, building fear, building struggle and sin until the psalmist comes to a point where he says, but again, I will trust on God. And then all of a sudden there's this big turning point and then the rest of the psalm is all about God's faithfulness. We actually see the structure in this poem of Jonah struggling with his circumstance and then fighting to look towards God's grace and then struggling with the circumstances and looking towards God's grace. And it's got this, this flowing feel, almost like the, the ebb and the flow of the waves of the storm. And I imagine that it actually feels much more like most of us in our times of struggle. Because it's not like we just consider our hard circumstances and then we go, oh yeah, but God's good. And then all of a sudden we're done. It's a battle to repent. It's a battle to believe truth. It's a battle to preach the gospel to ourselves and to cling to the grace that we have in Christ. And so we see here in Jonah that exact same thing happening. We see how he's struggling to believe truth amidst a terrible, terrible circumstance. And in that, I actually want to draw our attention to something that is pretty powerful. Because right here in the moment when it seems that this story could get no worse, it seems that it is at its absolute worst point for Jonah. What do we look at when we see verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17? It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And now look at chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah on the dry land. So we see here in the midst of this circumstance, God bookends this story with clarity about his sovereignty. You get that? Jonah's in this disaster of a circumstance. He's in the belly of a fish, for crying out loud. And God says, before that happened, I appointed that fish. And when I was done teaching Jonah what he needed to learn, I told the fish to vomit him out. God is saying, I am in complete control. I am the one who is sovereign over this circumstance. In the midst of this disaster, I am in control. And so we see again, just like we talked about last week, that it's often in the midst of our deepest struggles, our, deepest, our, our, our most powerful storms, that God is sovereignly doing them for our greatest good. But let's look a bit deeper into that. Because Jonah has sunk down. And again, he points to this over and over and over again. He talks about being in the belly of Sheol, which is like literally saying, I am in the belly of hell. He points on from that, and, but in verse 3, after saying he's in the belly of Sheol, he then looks and says, but God, you heard my voice. The very next verse, he says that in my sin and rebellion, I'm driven from God's sight. And in verse 4, he says, yet I shall again look upon your temple. He then struggles again saying, you brought my life up from the pit. But then in the very next verse, in verse 7, he says that my life is fainting away. But then finally he says, but I remembered the Lord and his prayer came to God's holy temple. So the major thing Jonah is fixating on here is God's temple. Why is that? Jonah here is a man that actually was running from God, trying to get as far away from God, God's presence as he could possibly get. And then here in the belly of this fish, he's, he's looking towards the single place in the Old Testament where God's presence uniquely dwelled. 
where God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people. So while running from God, Jonah's saying, but I'm remembering the temple. He's remembering God's faithfulness and his mercy. There's so much I wish we had time to go into detail with the temple and what it really means by Jonah looking back towards God's covenant promise. But simply put, by remembering the temple, Jonah's saying, I am remembering that I am a sinner, a rebellion in rebellion against God, and that I am in desperate need of a sacrifice on my behalf to bring me back into relationship with God. He's looking towards the temple that God gave as the basis for his radical grace, where a substitute could be sacrificed on behalf of a sinner. And so Jonah, in his darkest moment, is dwelling on the place of God's grace. And he is preaching the gospel to himself over and over and over again. And so how does that then mean that he's looking towards Jesus? He's talking about looking towards a temple. And now obviously Jonah existed about 700 years before Jesus was born. So he didn't know the man that walked in Palestine 2,000 years ago. But nevertheless, he was looking towards Jesus. And how we know that is look at this. Because not only was the temple the place where man's sin and God's glory met, but Jesus specifically said that the temple was pointing towards him. In John 2, when people were talking about the amazing glory and splendor of the temple, talking about how massive this complex was, which it was huge. This thing was a size, I think it was like 16 football fields. It was massive. And as they were looking at the splendor of this building, Jesus says, that is nothing. Because I tell you the truth, you destroy this, and I will raise it back up in three days. And now he's talking not obviously about this physical structure of this temple. He's talking about a temple much more glorious. He was talking about himself. He was saying something absurd. He was saying that if you destroy me, the true temple, I will raise back up in three days. He was saying, he was linking himself. He's saying, you know all that wonder that the temple is? That sign of God's grace? That place where sacrifice happened on behalf of your sin? That place where God's glory and man's sin collided? That's me. Because you see that the temple was the place where God's glory resided and the only place where man in his sin could approach the holy God. And where God's glory and man's sin collided, we see this explosion happen. We see an explosion of wrath and of love. We see of God's wrath on sin, his unrelenting wrath on sin. Why? Because he loves sinners. And anyone in this room who has ever loved anyone knows that when you love someone, you have a deep hatred for whatever would bring that someone harm. You don't begin to understand wrath until you see someone you love struggle through alcoholism, addiction, being wronged by someone else. So God, in his radical love for sinners, has a wrath that we don't understand and comprehend on the sin that destroys us. And we see in the temple where those two things meet, this explosion of his wrath being poured out on sin, but not on us, on a substitute on our behalf, so that his grace and his love could be poured out on sinners. And so we see in Jesus, him saying, you know that, that is nothing compared to me. Because I am the true temple. I am where God in his glory and man meet. And so Jesus is saying that I am a better temple. And not only that, not only can he bring sacrifice to me, but when you destroy me, the true sacrifice, I won't stay dead. My life will overcome death, and I will raise back up in three days. And so Jonah, knowing this in part, simply knowing that my only hope comes from a God who desired to set up a temple so that my sin could be dealt with, 
looks toward the temple, finally. After being a man who is obsessed with his own self-righteousness, his own good works, thinking his righteousness made him better than everyone else, he finally gets, for the first moment, grace. And I'm willing to bet, for the first moment in his life, he's starting to get the radical message of God that he had spent his whole life preaching and telling other people. This is a horrifying verse for pastors, let me tell you that. Because we can spend our whole life proclaiming grace to others while missing it ourselves. And so Jonah gets grace and it transforms him, not completely, we're gonna find out a lot more in the next couple weeks. Because we, the Christian life, get this, the Christian life is not a repented life. It's a repenting life. We don't look for our, 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 our hope simply in a moment that happened at Christian camp when we were seven. Yes, there is a moment where we are saved, where we are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but the Christian life is a repenting life where we continue to cling to the hope we have in Christ and continue to be transformed. And so we see that here in Jonah. And we see his first place of repentance. Look at verse eight through 10. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. And so Jonah is starting to realize that his hope is not in his own self-righteousness, not even in the hope that he has in the fact that he is Jewish or that he is a prophet, but that his hope is in a gracious God and in God's steadfast love. And so his attitude starts to turn from the self-righteous attitude of grumbling and entitlement to the humble, grace-transformed attitude of gratitude and thankfulness. And he says, with thankfulness, I will pray and I will offer sacrifice. And he says with a proclamation, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so this is big because Jonah doesn't know at this moment that he's going to be vomited back up on a dry land. You realize that, right? Jonah, for all he knows, is going to spend the rest of his life in this fish. And so regardless, he's looking to God for salvation. Whatever that might look like. And this is huge because it's once he comes to that point, then what happens? The fish vomits him out. God speaks to the fish and he's spit back up onto dry land and back to life. And so this is big because we have to realize that none of us is too far off from God. What we learn here is that the only requirement for salvation is to know that you need to be saved. The only requirement for Jonah in all this, a man who had done all the right things, all the religious requirements, whose Sunday Sunday school record had all the gold stars going right across the board, the requirement for him to be saved was to know he needed it and to seek God for it. And so it wasn't until he realized, I am an idolater. I am forsaking the radical, transforming love and steadfast love of God. My hope is in salvation, which belongs to the Lord. That's when salvation comes. So hear this. Whether you are like Jonah and grew up in church your whole life or was like the sailors we read about last week and have lived your life running from God into everything that the world has to offer, what you must know to be saved is that you need Jesus. And the only way to be certain that you don't know Jesus is when you realize that you think that it's by your own good works that you can do it. Because nothing is more opposite to the gospel, to the beauty of God's grace. And so this is a huge moment for Jonah. And one other thing that I think that we must really, really realize here, because as the, this fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Now, now, that, that's pretty gross. I don't know much about, about fish vomit, but it's pretty nasty. 
Yet, yet also, I, I, I guess it's also better than the alternative. For those of you who didn't get that, there, there's two ways out of a belly of a fish. And I'll take the way Jonah came out other than the latter. I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, happy Easter. Um, so the, the huge thing that we need to get here is that, that, that Jonah, in the midst of this storm, in the midst of this struggle, realizing he needs grace, God kept him in the belly of the fish as long as it took. And what I think we need to learn about that is that we need to realize that the storms and struggles we experience in our life will happen, will happen for as long as it takes for God to do his work in us. And what I mean by that is we need to be a people. If God is going to really give us resurrection hope in this church, we need to be a people who is praying in our times of struggle, not merely for the struggle to be over and completed, but for God to use the struggle to make us completed. Do you see that transformation there? When we start to recognize and realize that that our struggles, that our storms are there to bring us to completion, then that makes our prayer to God in the midst of the storm saying, God, this storm is terrible, but do your work in me because I know what you're doing in me is worth the storm. So use this storm to make me complete and don't just use your grace to get the storm over with. Does that make sense? That will really transform how we view as a church the sufferings that we face because God will stop at nothing to show us how desperately we need Jesus. So how does Jonah point us to look to Jesus? So we got how Jonah's, Jonah's repentance was him looking towards Jesus, but how does Jonah show, show that for us? Because even more than his repentance, his rising up from the deep and pointing, and, and, and rising up from the deep and to life, points us to a much more incredible story about resurrection. Look with me at Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something far greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is being asked for a sign to prove he's a Messiah. He's asked for a sign to prove that he's God. And Jesus says, you want a sign? You get the sign of Jonah. You're going to get a sign that Jonah was a foreshadowing too. That like Jonah was buried in, in, in the belly of the fish for three days, I'm going to be buried in the heart of the earth for three days. And just like Jonah was brought back up to life out of the fish, after three days I'm going to come back to life from the earth. I'll walk out of my grave. And so he's saying, you know how incredible that story of Jonah is that you all know? That's nothing. That's nothing compared to the sign that this generation's going to get. So what does he mean when he says that someone greater than Jonah is here? He's saying that where Jonah failed, I'm going to succeed. He's saying that, that Jonah ran from God's call I'm going to run to God's call. I'm going to ride into Jerusalem knowing that my death is coming. Whereas, whereas Jonah hated the thought of sinners being forgiven by a gracious God, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. He says, I come not for the well, but for the sick. And where Jonah was thrown to his death for his sin so that others might be saved, 
Jesus sent to his death for our sin so that we might be saved. And and maybe most radically, whereas Jonah was put in the belly of the fish for his repentance, Jesus Jesus was buried in the belly of the earth for our repentance. And this is radical because we, on Easter Sunday, celebrate someone who is much greater than Jonah. And so we see here that Jonah points us to the gospel. We see here that, that we are the rebellious ones. We were the ones that were called by God but rose up against him and run, ran from him. And that in our running, our lives went down and down and down and down into rebellion. But God in his grace, although all that we deserved was punishment, God in his grace sent his son, sent Jesus to chase after us, to live the radically perfect life, to fulfill the law perfectly, to be the only one who ever deserved to enter into God's presence, his holiness, because he was the holiness of God. And yet, rather than glory, Christ took our sin. Our sin, the sin of the the righteous church-going, self-righteous, and the sin of the immoral church-hating. Both of us running from God. He took our sin in its fullness completely on him, taking on the wrath of God, the substitute that bore the fullness of our punishment, drinking the cup of God's wrath dry as we celebrated on Good Friday that Jesus took in our place our sin and bore the wrath that was due us. The cross he was nailed to was our cross. And yet, his life overcame death. And he was raised so that we not only could look to the cross and see a sign of our death, but could look to the resurrection to see the hope and the promise of our life. You see, look, the resurrection is not something that happened to Jesus. The resurrection is what happens when the author of life encounters death. When the author of life, the fullness of life, the perfect son of God encounters death, it's a no contest decision. Death is swallowed up. Death is put in its grave and life abounds. So you see, there was no other option. When Christ took our punishment, Christ was going to overcome death and the resurrection is what shows us that the punishment was paid in full. There's no wrath left for us, amen? If you are in Christ, There is now no condemnation for you because he took it all. We just sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but he washed us white as snow. Jesus paid it all for us. And so we see here in the cross of Christ God's wrath on sin and his love on sinners collide in an explosion of resurrecting grace. Collide in an explosion where his wrath was spent, but where his love was poured out all the more. Lavish on us. Lavish on on those of us who are in Christ so that we might walk in newness of life so that we might be resurrected with Christ. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Because is is resurrection just an event? Is it just a historical event of our faith that we remember once a year? Was it just a divine thumbs up on 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 the death and the cross? Because if that's all it is, then, then we tragically miss the point. And I think we're missing the heart of Paul who said that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we of all people are most 
to be pitied. You realize that statement presupposes the fact that everything we do in this life is banking on the fact that we have resurrection hope. If we are not most to be pitied among all people, then it shows that we are not living our lives in the hope of the resurrection. What that verse means for us is that the only way that the world should be able to make sense of our lives is through the resurrection of of Christ. And so that's what we have to to get here. And now I'm not gonna be talking in, in these final minutes about the proofs of the resurrection, although those are incredibly important. I'm not going to be appealing to the, um, the empty grave, the certainty of Christ's death among Roman executioners, the fact that the Jews couldn't produce a body, the fact that the disciples went from this, this scared bunch of, of wimps to the most courageous, um, fearless men who maybe the world has ever seen. All those are incredibly, incredibly important. And, and there's a huge space for that. So if that's something you're struggling with, come talk with me because I would love to, to talk over some of that with you. But I don't want to go there because in these last moments, ultimately, it, if you don't realize why the resurrection transforms us, then it doesn't really matter if you believe it happened, I think. You know what I mean? If, if you don't yearn and long for the resurrection to be true, then it doesn't really matter if I can convince you that it is true. You're not going to live in light of it. So what we have to be is a, is a people who aches and longs for life in the resurrection. And, and what I want to look at is the purpose, what, what it accomplished. Because the resurrection, like I said earlier, wasn't just something that happened to Jesus. It was, it's what happens when life swallows up death. And so when by faith we're united with Christ... The resurrection isn't just something that we believe in. It isn't something we just believe happens. It's something that we live in and live in light of. And so the resurrection, first, it it proved that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that there was no more wrath to be owed. It proves that there's now no condemnation for us who are are trusting in Christ. It, it, It proves that we who were once enemies in rebellion against God are now at peace with him. But, but what I really want to rest on here is that the resurrection gives us who are once feared, who feared death, it gives us everlasting hope. And now this could be an unending sermon series on the, resur- on, on the, the purposes and, the, and, and what the resurrection bought for us. In fact, I kind of imagine that's what heaven's going to be, a never-ending proclamation of the wonders of what the resurrection accomplished for us. It'll be much better than, than this morning, I can promise you that. Um, but I just really want to look at the resurrection hope. Because Jesus' rising from the dead was much more than just some awe-inspiring movement-building event. Its power sunk deep into the hearts of the disciples. It transformed them so that they were willing to go to the ends of the earth and tell Jesus about a people, tell people about a Jesus that rose from the dead and made them so bold that every single one of them was persecuted for their ministry. And so if we don't get that, then really all Veritas will ever be is a moral spiritual club. It won't be a transformed church living in light of the resurrection. And that's much more of what Paul was longing for in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 10 through 11, Paul says this, longing to know Christ. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So the implications of the resurrection aren't just to see the power of the resurrection, but to attain them, to experience them. And Paul wanted so much more than just a spiritual understanding. He wanted to revel in the resurrection. He wanted to bask in it. And, and, and even more shocking is that this resurrection, Paul was longing for in the resurrection the power to suffer and die. That's, 
the most counterintuitive thing you can imagine. Paul's saying, I'm longing to experience the power of the resurrection so that I can suffer like Christ and die with no fear. The power of the resurrection isn't some holy roller power to name it and claim it. The power of the resurrection is a transforming power that points us to a hope so that we can join Christ in counting any cost to share in his sufferings so that we might join him in a greater hope in the resurrection of the dead. And that is a much bigger, bigger hope. And that is what, the, what, we, what we get when we kind of share the heart of Paul saying, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That verse defines resurrection hope for us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That is an explosion of grace that transforms our lives because we realize that we died with Christ and it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And so do you see the difference of merely knowing about Jesus and his resurrection and becoming a part of it? Joining in it? I mean, what does the world do with the man who rose from the dead? What does the world do with, with a people who are seeking to be in him, to join him, to glorify his name, and eternally reside with him? What does the world do with the church that we can realize that his victory over death guarantees our victory over death? that we can have a hope to not despair in our sufferings, we can have a hope to look past the moments that we feel like we, like Jonah, are in the belly of a fish. We can say salvation belongs to the Lord. Gives us a hope to look towards something greater because we know death was never meant to reign, but now in Christ, life will reign eternally. It gives us a hope to be victorious because Christ was victorious. And so hear this. If you're here this morning and, and this is kind of the, the one Sunday a year, you get dressed up and come to church, hear this. The Bible says that, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And now that, that, that's much more than just saying words, but looking to an empty grave, looking to an empty cross and recognizing that Jesus paid it all, overcoming the debt we owed and overcoming it with life and that in him, when we accept him by faith, when we look to him in faith, we can join him in life. So if this is for the first time in your life that you can look to that, then I invite you to trust in Christ. When we pray here in the end, just express to Jesus that you long his death to be your death and his life to be your life. And if this is the 10,000th time you've heard this, know that we are a people in Christ that are called to live our lives in light of the resurrection. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That we must live our lives realizing that the victory he bought on our behalf is now ours. So death has no sting and we no longer need to fear the grave because we get to celebrate eternally life. And that must change how we live. So, so it took Jonah being thrown into the depths of the sea to be wrapped up in seaweed, to be swallowed by a fish, to get the fact that he desperately needs Christ. It took the sailors really just seeing the storm calmed by a gracious God. And we're gonna see next week, it's gonna take the Ninevites nothing more than, than hearing the gospel proclaimed. And so, so whatever it is, you need to realize that, that none of us here are too clean where we don't need to be washed by Jesus and none of us here are too dirty where his washing won't cleanse us. 
we are all together rejoicing in the hope of the resurrection for life. So Jesus died and rose again three days later. He died for the Ninevites, those dirty pagans, for the dirty sailors, and he died for a dirty prophet of God. And he died and rose again to make us well, to make us whole, and to make us who were dead in our transgressions alive in him. So please don't leave here without looking to Christ, without finding hope in a resurrection. When we sing here in a moment, celebrate in worship. Not because this is the one day where we get to sing a few of the resurrection songs, but because what the resurrection accomplished on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the resurrection. We're amazed at your grace that, that we who were dead in our transgressions, who rose up against you, who are running to the ends of the earth away from your will, were invited by grace to let your death be on our behalf. To let your death be the place where, where your wrath on sin and your love for the sinner collide in an explosion of grace. God, let that explosion transform our hearts, raise up our passions, and transform our lives to be lived forever in light of the resurrection. Because Jesus, if you did not raise from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Because this is our only hope. We have nowhere else to look. No wealth, no comfort, no pleasures, no joys. Nothing but the resurrection gives us a hope for eternity. And so Father, I pray God that you will transform many hearts here this morning. Those of us who have never truly put our faith in Christ and found ourselves in Christ who don't know that we have a secure hope in the resurrection. Lord, awaken their hearts to know that, your, that their sin was placed on you and that your righteousness was placed on them and that they can receive that by faith. And for those of us, Lord, who, who have been in church our whole lives, grip us with a, a disgust for our own self-righteousness, with an impassioned love for your grace. And let us celebrate the resurrection because it gives us hope eternally. Lord, let us proclaim this message to the city. Lord, let the city never be the same. And it's in Jesus' death and resurrection in light of that, Lord, that we can approach you. And it's in his name we pray, amen.